Hello, friends. My name is Iris Josefina. I'm your host, and you are listening to the Planting Seeds podcast. On the Planting Seeds podcast, we explore how we can cultivate a more gentle relationship with our psychical bodies, the earth, each other, and the world around us through using our senses, science, the subtle, and the sacred. On Planting Seeds, we talk about all those topics you've always wanted to talk about. We are shamelessly opening up the conversations that we all so desperately need to settle in our precious bodies and relate to each other in a more open, truthful, and empowered way. I'm so glad you're here today. Welcome, everybody, for a new episode of the Planting Seeds podcast. Today, I have a very special guest with me. Her name is Georgia. She is an exercise scientist, kickboxer, karate black belt, and founder of the Fight Back Project, which is a trauma-informed kickboxing forum for female-identified survivors of violence. She also hosts a podcast, the Fight Back Podcast, which explores why people, especially women, might say that training in a martial art saved their life. Her guests include trauma experts and brave survivors across many martial arts and combat sports. Welcome to the show, Georgia. Thank you so much for having me. I've been following your work for a while. I've been following your work as well for a while, and I actually don't remember how I found you, but the moment when I started kickboxing myself and starting to dive a bit deeper into that, I just went Googling online and you were actually the first person to pop up when I typed in women and kickboxing or women and fighting, something like that. Yeah, I'm super excited to learn more about your work, how you got into this work uh, and why you feel it is important. And before I start asking you more questions, I would like to know how you plant seeds for a better world with the work that you do. I think this question is so beautiful, by the way, when you said it. And so the work that I do is with survivors of violence and of other trauma. And for me, it's not about like the huge transformation. I think it's really important, the little things that we can accomplish with day-to-day activities. Like I would consider that doing a martial art doesn't necessarily seem therapeutic, but For example, for someone to, for the first time ever, kick a pad, not even really hard, but just a little bit, or to do a punch, or even just to stand in a kickboxing stance and to feel powerful and to feel connected to their aggression, to their masculinity and their femininity, I think really goes a long way in their week after they have that experience and then shows up in a lot of other areas in their lives. So I think that there are lots of tools for people as survivors or just for people to connect to their bodies in a different way. And not every tool is going to be for everyone. Like I like yoga, but I'm not going to regularly do yoga. It's not for me. And I think that giving people options for different ways that they can connect to their body and then helping them pivot just a little bit on their relationship to themselves means that the other people that they interact with are going to feel that positivity 
They're going to feel that change in that person, you know, their children. If we talk about intergenerational trauma, perhaps that helps stop the trauma from being passed on and on and on. And so when I think about planting seeds and then growing trees, I really do believe that even if I work with just one client for the week or one client for the month, that the effect that them changing their relationships to themselves has is so far reaching. That's really, really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I totally agree with you that it's usually like the small things that make the biggest impact on the long run. Yeah, I'm just very curious how you got into this work and how you got to combine trauma-informed coaching or trauma-informed working with kickboxing. What's the story behind that? So... I was working as a clinical exercise scientist and for a number of years I specialized in back pain and neck pain and I was very interested in the psychology of pain into why someone might not choose but why someone might not get better despite doing all of the things that seemed like they should be making them better you know, on paper, as we might say. And so I was very interested in the brain connection to pain at the point where I met a psychologist as a patient of mine who was a trauma psychologist. And he knew that I was a kickboxer for recreation. And he said, did you know there's a body of research about using martial arts to help people with trauma? Would you ever work with my patients? And I was super interested because the reason I got into exercise physiology was because I wanted to help people, but I also loved martial arts. And I thought that the way I was going to help people when I first, first started was through coaching fighters. But I quickly realized that that wasn't that interesting to me because it was just like getting people a little bit better at sport. But I was like, what is the meaning behind it? Like, how is their life better? you could make an argument that like winning and, and having success in an area of your life is beneficial. And there's research about that. But for me, it wasn't enough. And that was why I turned to working clinically. But when he said that, I was like, what? I could combine that? That's crazy. Like, <laughs> yes, I want to be able to do that. So this was a few years ago now. And the idea sat with me. But in my mind, I thought that to take action on that idea, I would need a studio, you know, I would need a space that was quite private for clients that didn't have high traffic of other people coming in to do boxing, but that also was appropriate for boxing. I thought that I would have to invest a lot of time into getting it started, which was true. And I was working full-time and competing full-time. And at that point I said, I can't do this. It's too much for me. Fast forward, COVID happened, everybody got stood down from working and sent home. So we didn't have a job, didn't have purpose. And the idea came back. And I talked to some psychologists that I already had a working relationship with through my other work and said, you remember how I had that idea? Well, everyone's doing everything online now. Could we try it online? What do you think? And they said, you want to try it, we'll give you some patience and you can try it, which was crazy to me because I'm not a psychologist and they put really a lot of trust in me, but I worked really hard. I worked with a lot of somatic experiencing psychologists. We'll probably look back to talking about what somatic experiencing mm -hmm. is. I worked with some other people who were doing similar programs who I met through my podcast, which was a huge bonus for me. 
and I developed a program that we piloted. It went really well. And so we've just kept adding programs until COVID got under control in the city that I live in Melbourne enough that we could start doing face-to-face sessions, at which point I had worked out that we didn't necessarily need punching bags. And so now we're working out of a psychology clinic. So it's a beautiful setting. It's a really calming room. It's also used for yoga. It's in a psychology clinic instead of in a boxing clinic. So I feel that it's got a bit of a a less confrontational vibe for someone who's coming in for their first experience with doing a combat sport. Um, And so that's fantastic. But, you know, a lot of people now are really open to doing things online. So the online program is still running as well. And that's where we've got to now. It's been some trial and error and I've made some mistakes, which I'll be the first to say, and I've changed things with the program and I've taken on feedback from all of my clients. But I think I was more surprised at how well things went from the beginning. So yeah, it's been amazing. What an amazing story. And how beautiful that you got to meet all these people who could support you in really making this idea a reality and really be able to support your community and support people with this, because I really believe that it's so important, especially in this day and age, that people learn how to connect with their trauma and heal it. So I was wondering whether you could elaborate a bit more on what According to you, the connection between trauma and the body is and why it is important that we look at it and that we address it. Sure. So I think when we have a conversation around trauma, it's important to say what exactly we mean by that. Mm -hmm. So trauma is not just a traumatic event. Something that is traumatic for me might not be traumatic for you or might be in a certain setting, or if it is repeated many times. And so there are a lot of variables. But when we talk about something becoming trauma, we're talking about how the person, and in particular, how their nervous system responded to an event or a series of events that they perceived were harmful or life-threatening at that time. And the effect of that nervous system response was either so strong or repeated so often that it became a part of their habitual being and it has like an adverse effect on their day-to-day life. So the fact that their nervous system changed in response to this event or events has become something that they don't enjoy having. It's not been like a positive change in their habits. So that's important because when we say that trauma is the way that our nervous system responded, our nervous system is in our brain, but it's also in our spinal cord and it's all through our body. And our brain doesn't just talk to our body, but our body talks to our brain. And we can explain that, I think, in a way that makes a lot of sense to your listeners, especially who I assume would be mostly female. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's most most people who menstruate or who experience cyclical periods in their body. Perfect. So at the time, can be just before you menstruate, can be while you're menstruating, can be different for different people, but we usually say sort of towards the end of the luteal phase, you might feel extra emotion, right? You feel more mm-hmm. emotional. And what happens then, and we can probably all relate to this, is In your body, you might feel like a tightness in your stomach or maybe a lump in your throat. It can be very different for different people. That's how anxiety represents for me, but different people might feel tingling. They might feel numbness. It can be all sorts of bodily sensations, right? That's the start point. Then after that, your brain goes, oh, oh, I noticed that the body doesn't feel quite right. 
I'm anxious, right? Or I'm angry or I'm sad. And we attach a word to that based on our past experiences, right? In the past, when I felt like that, it was because someone was mean to me or, you know, something like that. So we have a body sensation, then we attach an emotion, then we think, why do I feel that emotion? And we look for something in our external environment that caused it. So it might Mm be, oh, it's because my friend doesn't treat me the way that she should treat me, or it's because I'm not valued enough at work. And we might assign some story to that, which could be true or could be, you know, somewhat true or, or totally not true at all. That's how we add subjective story onto these feelings in our body. So it starts at the body, then goes to an emotion, then goes to a thought. And what happens when you've experienced trauma or your nervous system has adapted because of trauma is that your body sends these signals all of the time. Sometimes mm-hmm. it can send them you know, so often or you can be habituated to sending them not at all. So it sends them so much that you kind of feel like they're not being effective anymore and you stop sending the signals, in which case we call that dissociative. Or you can just automatically default to being dissociative as a learned response as well. And that's where we link into the window of tolerance. So if everyone's following me, we say trauma is a traumatic event which our nervous system responded to, and that's a body feeling, okay? Your body will keep producing the same feelings because its number one priority is to keep you safe and alive. So if it perceives that threat might be still coming because there was some big threat in the past, then it will keep sending the same signals, whether or not those signals were feelings of stress or agitation or fear or needing to run or wanting to fight, there's one end of the window of tolerance. And the other end might be that our best strategy was to play dead or to completely shut off and to just kind of close your eyes and wait until the bad thing didn't happen anymore. And when either of those become habituated, then we add more story to them to say, well, this is why that I'm feeling that way. So at rest, normally our nervous system is, I'm able to look at you, I can look in your eyes, I can see that you're calm, that makes me feel calm, that's called co-regulating. I can do that, right? I can look to my peers for support and I feel calm myself. We can have a conversation about something where we might disagree and I'm not going to get upset. There are lots of different things that we can do when we're within our window of tolerance, or you might also say when we're activating our social engagement system, which is a, well, it's not really a circuitry of the brain because there are a few different circuitries, but as a simplification, it's one circuit of the brain. Mm-hmm. When we feel stressed, we will feel anxious or, you know, like we want to run or like we want to fight, you know, this fight or flight mechanism that we often is talked about. And what can happen is that if you've experienced trauma and that has been a useful strategy for you in the past, first off, amazing, your nervous system did what it was meant to do, that's wonderful. If you've learned that that's a successful way to offset stress because you needed to, then you default to it quicker. It becomes almost like a habit. And so you might feel triggered more quickly. Keep in mind, you feel that in the body first, then you might add something to it. 
Alternatively, if you've learned that playing dead is going to be a useful strategy for you, you might go straight to shutting down when something scary happens. You know, close your eyes, I don't want to deal with this. Or you might just go completely numb. You might have an out-of-person experience where you're looking at yourself Mm -hmm. from above. This is dissociation. This is incredibly common too. I think people don't realize how common it is for people to be dissociated and to be perfectly like high functioning, whatever that means. But people in society with really impressive jobs and careers and families, and it hasn't held them back in the way that you might think that it has. And that's why it can be so much more widespread than I think people realize. But that can be another automatic response and you can flick between them. So if in the middle of a window was where you feel comfortable, on either end might be this hyperarousal or hypoarousal, high arousal, low arousal. And both of those are states where it's difficult to learn things in and it's difficult to connect with other people in because your number one priority is surviving. So when somebody exits their window of tolerance, we want to give them skills to be able to come back into their window of tolerance. And we want to help them grow their window of tolerance so that it takes less for them to feel overwhelmed. And when they do feel overwhelmed, they can come back into their body. So to recap that, we experience emotions in the body first. We can go the other way too. So if you suddenly said something to me that was very specific about something that I had an insecurity about, maybe then that specific word would lead to an emotion and then I would feel that in my body, that's top down. But probably more of the time is we experience bottom up and we like to think we're always in control, but really our body is in control. And to say a mind and body are separate too is is quite an oversimplification. So we experience emotions in the body, which can then lead to narrative and know that when you've experienced trauma or really at any time, because it's important to be able to leave your window of tolerance in response to like a car suddenly coming towards you or like some sudden emergency, but that usually you come back into your window of tolerance. And if you stay out of your window of tolerance, that is a sign that your nervous system is adapting in a way that it's trying to look after you, but is no longer helping you, right? It's become an adverse. So you can mm-hmm. leave your window of tolerance in a way that is either too activated or too littlely activated and we try and help you stay within your window of tolerance as much as possible. Wow this information is so useful and thank you for explaining it in such clear easy language because I do know that when we talk about trauma it's quite confusing to people so thank you so much for clarifying this and simplifying it in words that I feel the listeners can really understand. And I'm also really curious how martial arts and how your project comes into this and how people can use specifically kickboxing to potentially unravel their trauma and heal it. So I do want to say that martial arts on their own have got very therapeutic properties. And there's a lot of Mm -hmm. research looking at this. You know, you join a community, you have the capacity to see a progression in your life where you might not have progression elsewhere. You might be quite stagnant in your job and, you know, not be as interested in climbing a career or you might be for other reasons stuck in a job, but you can see yourself progressing in your kickboxing or other martial art technique. And importantly, and probably the most reported thing is that when people do a martial art, they increase their self-confidence hugely. And a lot of that is through experientially fighting. So doing a martial art on its own without it even being trauma-informed 
can have a lot of transformative effects on people. The trauma-informed kickboxing then is a little bit different and is different depending on who teaches it. And so I can speak to the way that I run my classes. And that is to say that there are three things that are kind of skills and that are often difficult to do when you have experienced trauma. So they are interoception, choices, and being present. So Mm -hmm. interoception is your ability to sense your body. So when I'm hungry, I feel that my stomach is hungry and I notice that. When I'm, like we said before, when I'm feeling anxious, I feel that within my body. And when you've experienced your body only as a source of trauma and harm, you tend not to listen to your body so much. So whether or not you are dissociative or not, your ability to interocept when you have experienced trauma is typically diminished. And that's really important because it has so many implications in recognizing when you're feeling emotional as they're starting to come on and being able to help yourself calm down using strategies that you develop with your psychologist has implications around knowing whether or not you're hungry and whether or not you need to eat and then often can lead to eating disorders. And so there's lots of reasons why it's important to be able to listen to your body, but that's also scary to do. So when we think about, so the other thing that I said was, well, one of the other things was being present. So it's very popular now to talk about meditation. Meditation is well-researched, incredibly beneficial, very useful, but potentially very difficult for somebody who has experienced trauma. And the reason is if you close your eyes and just listen to your body, just follow your breath, your body might not feel safe and your breath might not feel safe because every time you breathe in, you activate your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight. And when you breathe out, you activate your parasympathetic And so that is the reason why in breathwork practices in particular, there's often emphasis on the longer exhale than inhale. That's calming to the nervous system because you spend extra time in rest and digest, but you have to breathe in before you can breathe out. And that in itself can be very scary for people. So what we recognize is that you want to learn how to be present and interocept, but meditation might not be available for you yet. And so you want to have a different kind of anchor that can help you stay present and help you listen to your body. So what we do at the Fight Back Project is we use kickboxing as a way to listen to the body. So as an example, at the start of class, we might check in, feel where our chair is, feel where the ground is coming to our body and then pick a body part for the session. So say, for example, it might be our glute muscle. So the muscle you sit on, your butt right? We might say, okay, can we stretch to feel where that muscle is in space? When you stretch it, do you feel a stretching sensation or a tension? Or can you just feel your glutes sitting on the chair? Can you do any of those things? Possibly no. Very, very common that in the beginning, you cannot. In which case, just the fact that you thought, where are my glutes? I think they might be kind of over there. Can't feel them, but I'm still sending a neural signal down to those muscles and they're sending a signal back to my brain. That's grooving a little bit of a pathway. And eventually what we find is people have an aha moment where they do start to come into the body. But recognizing that you're not bad, you're not doing things the wrong way because you can't feel your body yet and keeping that yet in mind is really important. So 
We're practicing interoception by doing that. We're also staying very present because we're thinking about where our body is. And if you're thinking about that, it's difficult to same at the same time, think about past and future. And certainly your brain will flick around between all of them, but it's a practice. Just like in meditation, no one expects to be able to stay perfectly with the breath for an entire 20 minutes from day one, right? Then we look at, okay, what about while you're kicking? Now can you feel your glutes while you kick? And as your balance gets better and you go through the program, that becomes easier. But still we're thinking, okay, can you feel those? We go through intervals where we practice bringing the heart rate up and down. And we still say, did you stay in your body during those intervals? You know, is there anything that you can do to help you think about that same muscle? And then we stretch through those muscles again at the end. So we just keep coming back to the body as a way to stay present and a way to practice feeling where the body is. And I think kickboxing is great because it is just enough of a challenge too for people that it's hard to be thinking about other things. So it kind of just gives you an opportunity to put down all of your problems for an hour and just focus on trying maybe not to fall over or just noticing the power in your legs and things like that. It gives you a little bit of a mental break. Now, the third thing that I spoke about was choice and It's incredibly important for all people to understand that you have the most important voice when it comes to what your body needs. So if I'm an exercise facilitator and I tell you, you know, I want you to do 100 push-ups and you say, no, I know I can't do 100 push-ups and I force you to do 100 push-ups, for one thing, you're you're probably not going to want to come back. It's not going to have been an enjoyable experience. And actually, if you're just starting out exercise, five push-ups or whatever you felt like you could have managed is already going to be a sufficient load to cause an exercise adaptation. But that's not even what's important. So really what is super important for all exercise is that you choose what you want to do. I promise you, nobody knows better than you what your body needs. We just are so conditioned to not listen to our bodies and to assume that we're wrong. If your brain's mm-hmm. saying, I want to quit, you know, and it might be like I'm menstruating, I'm bleeding. The reason I want to quit this exercise is because I assumed that I could go at the same intensity every single week and that it would be okay. And my body's saying, no, like we're tired. We're, we're using our resources for other things. We would like to stop now. And the effect of stopping and honoring that is so powerful. It changes the way that your body recovers. It means that you have this relationship with yourself where you believe in your ability to say no. And that is huge. And for me, like when my clients say, no, we don't want to do that. And everything at the Fightback Project is an invitation. So if you would like, we can do this. If you would like, you could do this instead. Would you like to do this? Yes or no. And we really honor everyone's ability to say, no, I don't want to do that. Or I would, but I would like to do it at this reduced capacity. And that to me is a huge sign that we are moving in the right direction with the program. So I think it gives people an opportunity to practice being able to make choices where we see that trauma really is the ultimate expression of not having a choice. Nobody would Mm -hmm. choose to experience trauma, period. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And I can definitely relate to what you're saying through my own experiences, but also through my work that for a lot of people, they don't even know that they have the option to say no. 
in many instances in their life, whether it's in their work environment or in their personal relationships or even to themselves, many people are unable to feel that boundary. And I speak a lot about body boundaries in my own work, that the boundaries that we can feel, they manifest in the body and we can literally sense in the body whether something is a yes or a no. And I think it's really beautiful that you take all of these components into a class because I believe there's such immensely important skills to use in life, like outside of the boxing room. And I think it's really beautiful that you are dedicating your life to offer this to people and to literally help them make feel more secure and safe in their own body so that they can literally navigate the world around them better. So thank you so much for offering that and to be here and to share all of this with people. I'm sure that many people will have like these little aha moments or like, oh my God, I want to try this. For people to know, uh, Georgia has online programs as well. And I've been thinking about signing up for the online program just to try it and feel it and see, you know, what is offered. There was one other thing that you mentioned to me that you would want to talk about, and that is your own experience with amenorrhea. Mm -hmm. And I was curious whether you could share about that. Yeah, so I think this is something that needs to be spoken about a lot in my world of combat sports because it is a sport that involves cutting weight, like the intentional losing of weight and then dehydrating in order to be a certain weight to step on the scale, to be at equal weight to your opponent. And for me, this was an excuse to maintain a very, very low body fat percentage for a long time. And I had amenorrhea for three and a half years mm -hmm. and I spoke to Maybe. so many doctors. Now, I wanted to say for people who don't know what amenorrhea is, just to clarify that, there are two types of amenorrhea. Primary amenorrhea, which is when uh, young people have not had their first period by the age of 15. But what you're talking about is secondary amenorrhea, which is when you have had normal menstrual cycles, but then they stop for three or more months, just for people to understand what amenorrhea is. And I'm sure that some of my listeners can relate to that or are experiencing this as well. But yeah, go thank on. you. And yeah, that was exactly what happened to me. My period stopped. And I think there was one instance where I was between competing for a little while and my weight got up just enough that it came back for one month. And then I, I was unhappy with how that my body looked and I wanted to make myself smaller and I cut weight again. I went back into competing and it was a really toxic cycle for me that was reinforced by doctors saying that it was normal because I was an athlete. My peers saying that it was normal because it happened to them and me thinking that this was a bonus and that, you know, like I got to go about my life without needing to worry about bleeding. Like I didn't have to think about when I was going to plan things for. I really thought it was a big win until I couldn't work out why I was having recurrent thrush. So like candida, yeast infections, whatever people identify them with. I finally worked out that there was a relationship there, that it was almost like because my body wasn't being nourished properly with the right hormones, that that was what might have been causing that to just no matter what antibiotics I was taking. And I, I really only took antibiotics, very little. Like I tried antibiotics, but I tried not to do antibiotics because I was very into naturopathy and I have been for a very long time. And I think that's really important to say to people too, is like, 
I was doing on paper all the right things, you know, to look after my body. But at the end of the day, I was still exercising too much and eating too little and too focused on what my body looked like rather than appreciating what it could do and what it's meant to do. And I, with the support of my partner, who was really, really huge in encouraging me to gain weight and talking finally to an integrative medicine doctor, who was the first doctor to say something might be wrong here, let's do something differently. And taking a period of listening to my body, reducing my training, increasing my carbohydrates and I gained weight, my period came back and has progressively gotten healthier and healthier since that time. And now I really am a very strong advocate for doing just technique-based things like very gentle drilling or watching videos of different techniques while I'm bleeding and giving my body the rest that it needs. And then also utilizing the fact that when I'm ovulating, I'm like supercharged. Like I can train really, Mm. really hard during that time. And it's probably like a quite a simple version of a of cycle syncing but for me like being able to do that but also still being able to do my sport and realizing that you know competing is not necessarily everything but also branching out so I'm now doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu more full-time because you can compete without cutting weight which has been really really fantastic and you know for me like if I compare then to now even though it was you know maybe more convenient and like I was much skinnier like I feel much better now I'm much healthier now and you know I'm very lucky that I was doing strength training throughout so my bone density wasn't affected by you know not having estrogen and even things like that, I think for people listening that don't know, like if you have amenorrhea, your body's not producing estrogen, you are at high risk of having low bone density. And then I was doing a high impact sport, punching each other, you know, like could fall over like that. I was very, very lucky not to have fractured a bone or to have done long-term damage to my bone health, not to mention, you know, all of my health off the back of that. So I still hear all the time from female athletes that I train with how because they're prepping for competition, they're stressed, they don't have the period, but it's normal. Their gynecologist told them it's normal. Like, I don't care who says that it's normal. I think it's super important to know it's not normal. Um, There's nothing wrong with you, like, but have a look at, I think, your lifestyle and whether or not you are being as kind to your body as you can be if you are experiencing that. Because I know for me, like, that was a hard pill to swallow to think that, like, I wasn't looking after myself and I was obsessed with looking after myself. But at the end of the day, it was true. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. And I totally agree with that. And I actually also worked with some athletes who had heard the same things from their gynecologists, from their doctors, like, hey, it's normal. But what I find so weird is that the body is always looked at like in the moment, like, oh, in this moment, you're young, it's normal that this happens, but we're cyclical beings and our cycles, they move in a continuum. So everything that we're doing right now has an impact on, you know, the moment that we maybe ever want to get pregnant. It's not like it doesn't exist in a vacuum. So I'm very happy for you that you found a way for you to basically start ovulating again, because that's also a thing that people don't often talk about. But ovulation is the most important event of our cycle that implies that we can have a period. And the hormones that are responsible for ovulating are also the hormones that literally keep us healthy and make sure that the rest of our body can function well as well. So I'm really glad that you found a way for you to feel stronger 
in your body and that you also sense that this helps you in your training. Like you feel that the hormones around ovulation assist your body to push maybe a little bit harder and you feel that it doesn't harm you around ovulation. That's really beautiful. Yeah, it's awesome. It's really good. <laughs> I love my ovulatory window and, and the way in which I can do my trainings. I do calisthenics and sometimes some kickboxing and running. So all these things I can do in my in my ovulatory window and it feels so amazing. Yeah, I was wondering, is there anything else that you would like to share about the work that you do? Something that you want people to know before we go? Yeah, so I think it's really important to know that when we talk about these transformative things that happen in martial arts, that they're not just an effect of learning how to defend yourself, that they are also, like I really loved when we were speaking about how it changes your boundaries. That is the most protective thing that you can do for yourself is to know where your boundaries are, what healthy boundaries are, having boundaries in place and holding yourself in a way that implies you deserve to have boundaries. There's research showing that that is protective against assault, right? We think about becoming re-victimized. One of the key factors is that predators can tell that you feel down and that you uh, are experiencing all of these things. They know that you're essentially an easy target, not that you don't know how to defend yourself. And I think it's really important to say that it's never your fault. Violence is never your fault. And as a black belt, I would run away if I was experiencing domestic violence. I would not try and fight. And I would be lucky to be able to run away because possibly my nervous system would just shut down because of my relationship to the attacker. I don't know. But it's really important to say that when we have experiences where we realize that we can be powerful beings, just punching and kicking the air or the pads and that kind of feeling, that is enough to cause an internal shift. And if you do something like this, if you do my program or you want to go to a local program, in-person kickboxing, whatever works for you, or different martial art, or even not a martial art, but whatever you do that you can go and you can feel really powerful, that is one of the most important things that you can gain from this kind of a practice. It's not just, I feel like I can defend myself better, therefore I feel more safe. So I think that, yeah, it's really important that we we note that, that we make sure that we say that it's never your fault. Violence is never your fault. And whatever you feel like is going to help you to feel better, if your body feels like a yes, if it feels light in response to doing something like kickboxing, and then I think you should do it. And if you feel heavy and that feels terrible for you and that feels like a no, then you should also honor that too. And rather than trying to push through and say like, this is going to be the thing that's going to make me feel better, it might be something different. And that's what I think is one of the beautiful things about being a human being on this planet is, is that we are also unique and different things are going to work for us. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And if you're listening to this and you want to learn more about Georgia and her work, you can find her on Instagram at Fight Back Project. She also has a website, fightbackproject.com, where you can find all information about her and her work and her programs. And I really want to thank you, thank you, thank you for being here to come on to my podcast and to share about this super valuable work that you're doing. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for anyone who's made it through to listening to the end of this podcast. I hope I haven't rambled too much about my own work. I'm usually on the other side of the microphone. So it's 
a little bit scary <laughs> to be on the side and to be talking about uh, the work. So if there's anything that confused you that I said, please send me a message on Instagram or contact me via my email or the contact form on my website or whatever feels most comfortable and safe for you as a way to contact me if you would like any more information or me to clarify anything at all. I'm always happy to help or chat. Mm, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please, please, please share it with others, with your friends, with your family, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or a review on all the platforms. To catch all the latest news from me, you can follow at the Planting Seeds Podcast on Instagram or at Cycle Seeds on Instagram. Or you can go to my website, www.cycleseeds.com. Thank you again so much and I'll see you next time.